waking up, but today there's a connecting going on. Beautiful. Good to see you all. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if you have a Bible, obviously you can use your own. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. They look like this. They're big. They're bigger print than they used to be. You can take it home and use it as a, uh, any number of paperweights or things like that. So um, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. Chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're starting a new series today, which we've been talking about for a little while. First uh, Peter, we're going to walk through this book from beginning to end. If you're new here, that's kind of a business as usual at FBC, where we'll take a book and we'll walk through it kind of section by section on Sunday mornings together. And so after about a month of jumping around in some topical studies, we're back in a book Good to be back, First Peter, here we go. So turn there, and actually, as we're getting ready to jump in, I'd like to pray for us and for our time together in the Word. So let me do that for us now. Well, Father, we come to you with grateful hearts. We are grateful for another day of life and another Sunday morning together, gathered as your people to worship you and to sing to you and now to open your Word. And so, God, we ask that you would help us understand uh, the things that we read here today. Lord, we need your help, we need your spirit to open our eyes to see, to come and teach us and convict us and comfort us and do your work in our hearts. And so God, we offer uh, you this time, pray that you would use it for your glory and for our good and the good of your world. We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've seen the classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, do you remember that famous line that Dorothy gives as she first sets foot in the land of Oz? Remember? Toto! Dog, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. If you don't know the story, Dorothy and her dog have somehow been transported from their dusty, brown and gray little Kansas home to the land of Oz. It's a magical place, and right away she steps in and realizes, I am not at home. And she takes a look around, and things look different. Strange people, strange creatures. It's colorful, it's bright, there's munchkins running around, people are singing. It's different than what she's used to.
think and view the world, the things that we believe, the convictions that we have because of our follow, because of our commitment to Jesus, makes us a little different. Strange compared to the people around us. Maybe you felt this. Maybe even in your own home, in your own family, you sense, I'm, I'm different. I'm, I'm not at home because of this commitment to Jesus. Maybe you felt that in your workplace. I'm out of place here. As a Christian, I've seen this kind of odd. Maybe I'm mocked a little bit. Maybe I'm made fun of. Maybe in your neighborhood. Because I'm a Christian, I think differently. I live differently than the people around me. And that can lead to this discouragement or this kind of unsettling feeling. I've experienced this, especially in college, I remember, spending a lot of time in the dorms and in college classes with friends and peers who were just kind of confused that I lived the way that I did or I didn't participate in some of the things that they participated in. I remember talking about Jesus and some philosophy classes and uh, with, with my peers and just getting kind of blank stares. Who are there? Like people like you are out there? Like, like we've heard about these Christians, but you're one of them and you're here among us. This is very strange. Or you ever notice, like in, in TV shows or movies, the Christian character is always really weird. They're like this like crusty, judgmental, kind of like odd character that doesn't quite fit. It's always like, oh, why is that the way that Christian gets portrayed in that TV show? It's so unfortunate. But it just it, it picks up on this sense that, that Christians are kind of looked at as strange and different and odd in this world. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably wonder, how can I live and thrive in that environment? What should life look like for me as I follow Jesus in the world today? It's really that question that's driving the book of 1 Peter. That's why I've called this series Life in Exile. Exile is not a word that we go around very often, but if you are living in exile, it means that uh, you, your home, where you live, it is not your true home. That your geographic place of residence, where you sleep and where you eat, your, your home is away from your actual home. So you in one sense have a home, but really you're not at home where you live. And so in 1 Peter, he's writing, the Apostle Peter in the first century, to Christians that have that sense of we are different, we're out of place here, our true home is not here, and so how should we live in light of that? So let's look at the first couple of verses together and start to explore this. The book begins in verse 1, chapter 1, like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So we see right away that the book begins by identifying the author, the apostle Peter, the one that we saw so much of in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember him? It's quite bold, quite impulsive, he was the first one to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then quickly was rebuked by Jesus. He's the one who denied Jesus three times. 
He's the one who was reinstated by Jesus, though, to lead the church forward. Peter was a, a leader, church history shows us, in the early church, especially in Jerusalem. And so here, this follower of Jesus is writing to believers in the first century, kind of scattered throughout the ancient world. And you notice how Peter addresses those who received the letter in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. He calls them exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, and, and so on. And each of these locations mentioned were a region, a, a province of Asia, Asia Minor. We actually have a little map to show you kind of the uh, region in blue there, the writing that was Asia Minor. And those are kind of the provinces or regions roughly slapped on there where this letter would circulate. And so a lot of the letters in the New Testament, you think about like the letter of Ephesians, it was written to the church in Ephesus. And like written to one church, one city. But the letter of 1 Peter was meant to be shared and it kind of made its way around this region. And so it was written to a number of different churches, a number of different uh, groups of believers, but all who shared a similar situation. That they kind of found themselves out of place in the world around them. And so he uses the language of exile to talk about what they're experiencing, which, if you know the Old Testament, it would be familiar to you. God's people had been carried away into exile before and forced to live outside of their homeland, outside of Jerusalem, in Babylon, or elsewhere. And so part of their history as the people of God is we're, we're kind of sojourners, we're strangers, we're, we're aliens, we're strange people in a strange land, and we're longing for home, to live where God would have us. And so Peter is using this idea of exile, but in a different way. Because he's not primarily speaking about a geographic sense of exile, as if these Christians really should be living back in, in Jerusalem or some other place. He's using the concept of exile as a metaphor to explain their spiritual place in the world. That because of their commitment to Jesus, they're spiritual exiles. They're out of place in the way they think and view the world and believe with the people around them. Their commitment to Jesus makes them kind of off-putting to the people around them. Makes them kind of strange. Makes them feel out of place in their communities. See, in a lot of the New Testament writings, the background and the context is the church facing persecution. Suffering, imprisonment because of their faith, or being like dragged away and even killed, martyred for their commitment to Jesus. That's not as much the background of 1 Peter, which is likely written in the early 60s. More likely, uh, the church wasn't facing like, hey, we're going to kill you because you believe in Jesus, but more again, we're not so sure we want to hang out with you. There's kind of this like social ostracism where we don't want to be around you. You guys are kind of weird and kind of a threat to the social order. We're not sure we want our kids to play with your kids. We don't really want you as our neighbors. And so they're not being dragged away to prison just yet, but they're criticized and mocked and viewed with suspicion and viewed with a little bit of hostility because of their commitment to Jesus. And see, first century Christians were remarkably different from the Greco-Roman neighbors. In studying this, there were a number of indicators that this was true. 
And so I thought, what are some of the reasons that Christians in the first century would be feeling like exiles? What are some of the convictions that they had that would make them out of place with the world around them? There are a couple that jumped off the page. First, the early Christians crossed ethnic boundaries and social boundaries. So in the ancient world, often your religion was determined by your people group, your tribe. You worshiped the tribal gods or the gods of your nation. But then the Christians came along and said, actually, uh, we worship the, the god of all nations. And so all peoples, no matter what tribe or tongue or background you have, should come and worship the one true god. Also, in the ancient world, it was common to associate pe with people who were like you. And so if you were poor, you hung out with poor people. And if you were rich, you hung out with rich people. There wasn't a lot of uh, crossing those lines in terms of social class. But then again, the, the Christians came around and said, actually, it doesn't really matter if you're poor or rich. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, we're now one big family. And so we have a bunch of different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, Homelands represented here in this one new family. And we're forced to spend time with people that we don't uh, otherwise spend time with people. We wouldn't otherwise hang out with them and work for the shared commitment to Christ. Second, the early Christians refused to worship other gods or the emperor. So in the Greco-Roman world, nearly every part of life was infused with some kind of, of pagan worship or tribute to deities. One commentator wrote that whether it was a social club or household cults, all aspects of Greco-Roman life were permeated with veneration of false gods and spirits. So hosts at dinner parties would pour libations to gods at the beginning of banquets, where they would, again, honor and worship the emperor as if he was a god. And the early Christians came along and said, uh, no, we're, we're not going to actually participate in that. And early Christians sometimes were referred to as atheists. Maybe you know that fact. It's a little strange compared to how that word is used today. But the people around them said, those Christians, they deny the gods. They worship this Jesus, this one God, and they deny all the other gods that we know. So they're atheists. So very strange, that actually was a big problem because in society, in your tribe, in your nation, uh, the favor of the gods was very important. And so if there was a group of people that was out of line and not honoring the gods, then you would start to get worried. Are the gods going to get mad with us in our neighborhood? They're going to bring bad things our way. And so those Christians are causing trouble because they're not honoring the gods, and that's going to come back to hurt us. Third, Christians held to an exclusive sex ethic. For a Christian, expressing your sexuality was only appropriate in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. But in the surrounding culture, especially for Roman men, there were virtually no bounds for their sexuality. They could be married, have a spouse, but also have a mistress, also force themselves upon female slaves or uh, young male slaves. It really didn't matter. Roman men could have sex with whoever they wanted pretty frequently. Women were still supposed to stay faithful to their husbands. It would be kind of shameful if they didn't, but the men, there virtually no bounds. And then the Christians came along and said, actually, no, that's, that's not the appropriate way to practice sexuality. It's actually in uh, the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. And so husbands, men, you have to be faithful to your wife as well. 
not just her. You guys are equals in marriage. And the women were like, thank you very much. They were very drawn to that. Said, men, be faithful to your spouse. You're to love her, serve her, cherish her, and her alone. So again, for, for Roman men, that was a very strange concept. And no sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage. Fourth, early Christians were resolutely against infanticide and abortion. So in the ancient world as well, unwanted pregnancies would get terminated, or even a child after they were born would get like just left outside to die. So the elements, the animals would come by. It's really horrific stuff if you read the history on it. Um, they'd find just gutters full of, of the remains and bones of babies, a few days, weeks old, because they were unwanted, especially women, especially little girls that weren't wanted. They just get thrown literally to the gutter. But then the Christians came around and said, no, this isn't okay. These children are made in the image of God. We're to protect them and nurture them and care for them and love them. We could go on. But you see, in these reasons, crossing ethnic and social barriers, worshiping only one God and not other gods or the emperor, holding to a, a, a strict, exclusive sex ethic, being resolutely against abortion and infanticide. And for a number of other reasons, these early Christians felt like we are not at home. We are weird and different and not like our neighbors. And this wasn't just something, this isn't just something that's exclusive to first century Christians. Because I think a lot of us follow Jesus today, here in 2019, can relate with that feeling. Because of our convictions, our values, we're out of line with the world around us, and we don't feel at home. I talked to a number of people in preparing for today, uh, friends of mine, I asked them, can you relate with that concept of not feeling at home? Kind of explaining them a little bit of what the sermon series was about. Like, have, have you experienced that? And every person I talked to <laughs> Absolutely. Like right away. Yep. Been there. Felt that. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be looked at funny or to be criticized or mocked because of my beliefs, because of my convictions, whether it's in my house or in the workplace or in my neighborhood. And they listed various reasons for that. And some of them were some of the reasons that we, we talked about already. The same reasons that the first century Christians felt out of line with their surroundings. And so some of the reasons that we might feel this way today is that, again, as Christians, we're still committed to, to worshiping one God, right? to serving Jesus and, and Him alone. And that's the gospel that we proclaim every week. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. <coughs> we recognize that we've sinned, we've fallen short of God's standards, God's expectations, we've turn from him and ran the other direction and there's only one way to get right with God to be forgiven of our sins to be given new life and to know God, to be reconciled to him and that's through Jesus Christ and him alone and so automatically when we make that exclusive claim, it puts us out of sync with the rest of the world that says, watch, there's probably many ways or many paths where what works for you works for you and so they want to expand the options, but Christians actually say, no, there's, there's, there's one way, and, and it's Jesus. See, it's one thing to say, I 
uh, love Jesus, someone will say, oh, okay, cool. But then when you say, yeah, can I do, you should love Jesus too. Well, right, that, that crosses the line. Another way that we experience this is that today, Christians still hold to a biblical, exclusive sex ethic. We say that appropriate sexuality, again, like the first century Christians said, is, is expressed in the context of a man and a woman in marriage. And so no sex before marriage or outside of marriage or even same-sex intimacy, uh, those are outside of the will of God. And so again, automatically, when you make that claim, it, it puts you out of sync with the world around you, where the world at large views sexuality, maybe not at large, but the world in the West, Today, view sexuality very differently than that. And that seems very narrow, very exclusive, very harsh, maybe dangerous even. And so I think of the issues today, those are probably the two that come up the most, at least what I've seen, that, that makes Christians look weird or out of sync, is our exclusive claim that, that Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God, and uh, the way that we think and talk about sexuality. I don't think those are the only reasons that make us strange or different, but those are probably the two most common where we find ourselves today. We can also talk about, though, our commitment to sacrificial love and generosity and giving that we're called to care for the poor, to care for those in need, to care for refugees and those who are disenfranchised, to say, I love you, and I'm going to uh, care for you even if it inconveniences me. Even if it's costly to me, my safety or my well-being, or my family, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love you. My life is gonna be complicated because of my commitment to love you. But I'm still gonna do that because Jesus called me to do that. And that's what Jesus did, right? As opposed to just kind of looking out for self, looking out for your best interest. We're called to care for the needs of others. Also, as Christians today, we're committed to life in community. Rather than individualism and independence, which are values that are highly held in America, as Christians, we say, we're actually committed to life together. And see, everyone loves community. Everyone loves friendship. So it's not a distinctly Christian thing to want people around you in your life. But as Christians, we're saying we're bound to one another. Where it's not just community when it's convenient. It's not just community when it works for you, but it's we have this obligation to, to do life together, to love one another. Even people that we don't like so much, we're one big family, and so we've got to figure it out. We can't just opt out of community. As a Christian, again, that's, that's a strange thing for the world to see. And so, I think today we can relate to what the audience of Peter can relate to. Not outright persecution, but if we follow Jesus faithfully, especially here in the Bay Area, we're going to feel not at home. We're going to feel a little uncomfortable. It's going to be hard to talk about some of these things. And it's my hope that as we study this book, this reality would not move us to uh, anger or, or bitterness or discouragement. I think sometimes we see that. As Christians feel uh, that increasing pressure or like they're increasingly out of place, there's this bitterness that wells up within them, this anger at, at those people out there who view things differently than us. I don't, that's not my hope, but I think that that's not the approach Peter gives us. 
rather Peter's going to call us in, in love and in joy and humility, live out our faith before a watching world. Actually, the people that I talked to about this idea of being not at home, I asked them, can you relate to that? And they all said, yeah. And most of them added that it's a real opportunity, that they're kind of embracing that, that outsider-ness and seeing that God's called them here to love people and to live in this world in such a way that it makes an impact. And they see that as a joy, as a gift, as an opportunity, not something to be bitter about, not something to just cause us to go and like build up the walls of the church really high and retreat into the fortress so that the scary world can't affect us. No, we're actually sent out on mission with the love of God. And so we're going to come to terms with that and, and learn how to do that through this study. But there's more in this text than just the identification of an exile. So it's not just, hey, remember that you're an exile. There's, there's more here in these opening verses. It reminds us why we're exiles, or what makes us exiles. Look at the text again with me. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the obedience of Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with His blood, grace, and peace be yours in abundance. So you see in verse 1, he's not just saying, hey, you're exiles, but he said, you are God's elect. Elect exiles. Verse 2, you are chosen by God. So Peter's talking to these believers in the first century and saying the reason that you are not at home in this world is because you have a new home with God and with his people. That's why you feel so out of place. And this could be helpful because if we look back to the Old Testament again, we'll see that God's people have always had this call to be distinct from the world, to, to look different. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And elsewhere in Scripture we see this. God says to his people, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people and his treasured possession. You're a chosen people. Holy, set apart, distinct, called to be different in the world. God says, I want the world to see something different in you, in the way you interact with one another, in the way you interact with me. I'm going to use you, my people, to reflect my heart, to show the world who I am. So it's supposed to look different from the people around you. And so Peter is applying that same Old Testament language of the chosen people of God that was used for the Jews, and he's applying it to the church. To the first century believers, to anyone who is following Jesus, whether they have a Jewish heritage or not. So you're, you're in exile, but that's because you belong now to the family of God. You have a new home, and so you're supposed to feel out of place in this world. You're supposed to be different. And I don't say that as like a license to be reckless or like a bull in a china shop. Sometimes people take that. This is like license to be a jerk. And so I'm just going to be like rude and harsh and uh, lack tact and just uh, run around and, and be really a 
abrasive with people, and if they don't like it, well, it's like, well, I'm supposed to look different. That's their problem. I'm supposed to look different. But sometimes we're just unnecessarily rude. And so this isn't giving us license to be rude or license to be a jerk. It's just saying that when we follow our convictions, it necessarily will lead to some un uncomfortable conversations. Some necessary offense that the gospel brings with it. But not offense that's brought about by our harshness or our lack of grace or lack of compassion. Peter's saying you're supposed to look different. In fact, if we're following Jesus and we don't look different than anyone around us, we, we say we know the Lord, but we feel completely at home and comfortable embracing the lifestyles and values of everything around us, that's probably an indication that we haven't really grasped what it means to follow Jesus. And for those of us that do feel uncomfortable in this world, our comfort then, or our discomfort, should be a source of comfort. Like the fact that we're uncomfortable should be comforting. Because God's word reminds us that as his people, we're going to be different. You know, I remember living in exile for a number of years in Colorado. <laughs> Home of Sacramento. Amber and I met in the Bay Area. And we moved to Denver for about six years for seminary. And worked at a church out there for a while. And our hearts, hockey-wise, for the San Jose Sharks. Yeah. Any Sharks fans in the room? Okay, big, 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 yeah. big Sharks fans. Okay, we were living in exile around a strange people in a strange place, and they've cheered for the Avalanche. Yeah. Some Colorado people over here. But the Sharks would come to town a couple times a season, so we would get tickets. We'd want to go and see our team representing them in a foreign place. In a strange land, strange territory, surrounded by thousands of avalanche fans, we would go boldly wearing our Sharks jerseys to the stadium. Confident. With joy. But automatically, because of that, we were looked at kind of funny by the rest of the crowd. It was clear that we didn't fit in. Clear that we were out of place. And Amber would probably tell you that I was obnoxious more than I needed to be. <laughs> Yelling loudly about my love for the Sharks, cheering loudly when the Sharks would score. We were there representing our team, but that automatically put us out of, out of place. Don't get me wrong, Denver people were nice and friendly, and we had a good time in the game. There was a little bit of difference, right? But we thought about that, and it was like, man, it would have been wrong if we didn't stand out, right? If our true allegiance was to the Sharks, and we loved the Sharks, and we're there, and we just kind of try to not make just blend in, maybe even wore some avalanche gear, even though internally we were rooting for the Sharks, like high-fiving the avalanche fans when the avalanche had scored, and they'd be like, these people, they're, they're with us, they're, they're avalanche fans too, and I'm like, that would be wrong, right? That wouldn't be okay. As Sharks fans, if our true allegiance is to the Sharks, we're supposed to, to stand out a little bit, look different, and that is okay. So the same thing is true for a Christian, that our commitment to Jesus is going to necessarily mean that we're going to look a little funny, think different, live different than those around us. And you know, as, as verse 2 continues, he unpacks a little bit of uh, dense 
theology. You can see, he says, you're exiles, but you're elect. Exiles, the chosen people of God. You can see how verse 2 kind of wraps up. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So Peter clearly mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity at work in your salvation and you coming to know the Lord. So I want to walk through these just one by one with some brief comments. He says, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is an area of theology that gets a little dicey sometimes. That people have different opinions on what does it mean that God has foreknowledge. Does that simply mean that he has information ahead of time? He knows what's going to happen. Some people would take it that way, but I think the biblical concept of foreknowledge is a bit uh, stronger than that, let's say. It carries with it the idea of determination, of God bringing things about, God executing His plans, His eternal plans coming to pass. And so the idea is that God chose you, God called you, and He set His love and His affection upon you in eternity past. Before you move toward God, God moved toward you. And so Peter wants his audience to know, these early Christians, that you're not a Christian by accident or merely by your own decision alone, but God has called you and determined to bring you into his family. And that stirs up a number of questions. If you have questions, we want to talk after this about Foreknowledge, predestination, things like that. If you could just would love to talk with you about it and explore it. But there is one thing I would want to say now that this doctrine, whenever it shows up in Scripture, is intended to be a comfort to believers. It's intended to be an encouragement to them. And sometimes the question comes up, like, man, it worries people. Like if God execute, executes his eternal plan, calls people to know. And what if I'm not one of the chosen people? What if I'm not one of God's elect? What if God did not foreknow me? And sometimes fear or worry creeps up into our hearts because of that. Let's say there's one simple way to think through that or figure that out. The question for each of us is, do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus and want to follow Jesus, you don't need to, to worry about God not Choosing you because that fact is evidence of God's work in your heart. It's evidence of God's work in your life. And so it's not going to be someone saying, Man, I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus with all my heart, but I'm worried that he's not going to choose me. It doesn't work that way. The fact that we are desiring to follow Jesus is evidence of God's power and transformative work in our lives. So we're chosen, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Passage goes on. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit a lot last week. Right? The Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us to be uh, witnesses out in the world, to point people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit also sanctifies us. This says, sets us apart, calls us, does the necessary work in our hearts to draw us 
change us, to transform us, to give us new life, uniting us to Jesus. So a lot of times as believers, we don't uh, fully understand, or maybe we're not always able to articulate the role of the Holy Spirit, but anyone who is a Christian has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, whether they realize it or not, because it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and unites us to Christ. And then lastly, it says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So this, this new life we live is in obedience to Jesus Christ. We recognize that Jesus is our King, Jesus is our Savior, our Master. We serve Him, we follow Him. And this is so important because I think sometimes today we get kind of drawn into vague spiritual talk. When we talk about uh, God's blessings or God's healing or this new awakening we have or this life that we have with God or this healing that we experience, but we don't always bring the specific name of Jesus into it and identify that we're not called to some vague uh, good vibes or spiritual thing out in the world. We're called to follow Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the King, the Master, the one we're called to obey. And so Peter here is making that crystal clear. This is not some salvation in vague spiritual terms. We're called according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who is the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then Peter wraps up his introduction by saying, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And so this is simply an introduction this week. We're going to get into in the weeks ahead, what does this all mean? What does it mean to live life in exile? What's the so what here? What is God calling us to? We're going to explore that and talk about that. But for now, I hope that the takeaway for you will be a sense of rest and peace and confidence. That although you are living as an exile in this world, you have also at the same time been given a new home with the Lord, with his people new identity as a child of God? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or not sure where you're at with all this stuff, let's be clear, I'm not, I'm not inviting you or encouraging you to just embrace a, a set of abstract <coughs> principles or have you jump through a set of religious hoops, but I'm encouraging you to embrace Jesus, to embrace the God who loves you, to come to know Him, Receive his forgiveness, and then as you love him and are reconciled back to a relationship with him, start to figure out, okay, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean that my life needs to uh, be shaped differently because of this commitment to Jesus? And we're all who've committed to the Lord, we're all figuring out, what does that look like? What changes do we need to make to more come in line with who God is? So friends, we have a chance now to Remember Jesus through communion. We're going to celebrate by coming to the table as a church family. If you look at verse 2, there's one piece I didn't mention specifically. It talks about how we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, a covenant was ratified. An agreement, a relationship was ratified by the blood of a sacrifice. That we sprinkled. And so today, as we think about our relationship with God, it's, it's possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood. 
that was shed for us, his body that was broken for us to bring us forgiveness and adoption into his family. Through faith, we can become children of God because of what Jesus has done to cleanse us and welcome us. And so that's what we remember as we come to the table. Jesus' death and resurrection and sacrifice for us, the new life we have in him. So I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, to participate with us. The music's going to play in just a minute. We'll have the two stations up front. Everything's gluten-free, so you can come down as you're ready. Take the elements and celebrate with us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or not really sure you're with that, uh, feel free just to remain seated and reflect on the things we've talked about so far. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for the comfort that knowing you brings. And though we are exiles in this world, though we are out of place here, and that is quite discouraging for us at times, we are so comforted to know that we belong to you, that we are your sons and daughters, that it's our commitment to you and this life you have called us to, that is what makes us different. So Jesus, we remember you today. We remember your blood, your broken body that made this relationship possible. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. We come with humble hearts, aware of our sin, but also with joy and gratitude knowing that we have been forgiven. 